everyone, I'm Riyad Alkyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dignified Resilience. As listeners and viewers are familiar, this is a podcast with guests from different branches of life and people from all around the globe. Yet it is always a truly special pleasure to share any speaking platform, let alone one that I have been creating myself here with someone who is a Bosnian or Bosniak, an expert from the region, um, even when we often might engage in conversations about difficult topics. I believe though that these uncomfortable topics are necessary to address, um, especially when they are ignored elsewhere and when there is so much fragility of peace still in the Western Balkans. I'll first introduce my two guests. They are very knowledgeable to kind men who are experts at what they do and what they study. Uh, first of all, Yasmin Mujanovic, he's a political scientist and analyst of Southeastern European and International Affairs with a PhD from York University in Toronto. His career background is a unique blend of global economic and professional engagement as he's worked as a scholar, policy analyst, consultant, researcher, and writer in both North America and Europe. He's also an author of his first book, Hunger and Fury, The Crisis of Democracy in the Balkans, was published in 2018, and he was the co-host of the podcast, Sarajevo Calling. On a non-professional note, let me add that he's also someone who is incredibly eloquent and witty, and I'm very thankful to Yasmin because I can use and share his tweets uh, to retweet them almost always, so I don't because I'm embarrassed to, to do it all the time, but on many, many occasions, um, if it's about politics in Bosnia and Western Balkans in particular, he says what I think we agree with, so it's an honor that he is here with us today. And my second guest, um, Harun Bulina, he's a historian of the late Ottoman and modern Balkans with a focus on Muslim intellectual and socio-political networks in this region. He received PhD in history from Columbia University in 2019 and uh, defending the dissertation on pan-Islamist reform movement in the late 19th and early 20th century Bosnia-Herzegovina. Most recently, he was affiliated with the Center of the Middle Eastern Studies at Harvard University. And here, on non-professional note, I'll say that I first contacted him in 2019 when I learned about his PhD thesis because that topic really interested me, and he kindly shared it with me. And uh, most recently, I listened to Harun when he shares his advice to get off Twitter, so then I get off Twitter, and then I enjoy it. 
And then I learned that Twitter is on fire because of a thread right. that Harun posted. <laughs> so then I wrote him a message and I say, how am I supposed to not have FOMO or fear of missing out, Harun? So um, that said, I want to share again my pleasure uh, for having them today as uh, my guests. And before we begin to both of you, let me say again, hello, welcome um, to Dignified Resilience. And how are you today? Any of you? <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for that very kind introduction. I'm well, and I'm very excited here to be speaking with you, and also Harun, who uh, unfortunately I haven't physically seen in a couple of years, but it's really nice to even share this space with both of you. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah, Riyadh, thank you. It's great to be here with you, and um, and also to see us meet again after a long time. So I'm excited for the conversation we're going to have here today. Absolutely. And allow me just one more note. Uh, before we start, I do want to extend my warmest greetings to all those people who, whether in online or offline spaces in specific circles among scholars, activists, academics, ordinary people in Bosnian diaspora and that of the Western Balkans, do continuously talk about um, things that we will address here today, whether it's politics or history or representation or trauma and grief. And through their effort and their work and their care and dedication, they allow for incredible intellectual growth. Um, they help to all who want to invest time and effort, uh, including myself, to keep learning. So I say thank you, and I don't want to make this sound like uh, some award speech with mentioning tons of names, but because I forget somebody, but I do really hope that those people know who they are. I am uh, grateful, and I try to do my part uh, to uh, contribute constructively. To better understanding of our positionality in the geopolitical conjuncture and to share knowledge and our legitimate aspirations, um, let alone yearnings to be taken seriously. So that said, um, Yasmin, uh, first, let me start with you. And of course, Harun, you're more than welcome to always pitch in um, any of the thoughts. Um, in your opinion, Yasmin, what is the biggest threat in the Western Balkans regions right now and why? Uh, well, it's a, you know, Unfortunately, right now at this very moment, it's one of those questions that's hard to answer given the weekend that we've just had. In fact, I would say the last couple of weeks, of course, with not just with everything that we've seen on the Kosovo border, but also in Cetinje um, and in Montenegro more broadly. Uh, nevertheless, I would say that for the better part of the last decade, um, the kind of primary threat facing the the, the broader region and, and indeed um, this includes the present situation in Kosovo and Montenegro, is the threat of renewed Serbian ultranationalism, and in particular Serbian revanchism as kind of the stated government policy of the Aleksandr Vucic regime in Belgrade. Um, so we have seen, um, you know, since uh, Vucic and uh, the erstwhile Nikolic, who has now, of course, disappeared for all intents and purposes, um, since this kind of rump radical SNS regime has restored power, restored itself to power in Serbia, um, they have very deliberately, with great intentionality, returned to kind of the core principles of uh, uh, Serbia's Milosevic era foreign policy, which is um, most clearly, clearly articulated over the last couple of months by the um, Minister of the Interior of Serbia, formerly the Minister of Defense, Aleksandr Vulin, um, namely this project of the creation of the so-called Srpski Svet, uh, uh, Serbian world. Uh, which of course is both directly playing off of a similar concept in Russian, known as the Ruski Mir, um, but more prominently and more obviously very clearly modeled on the Greater Serbia project that Mr. Vucic 
embraced during the 1990s as, as a member of the Serbian Radical Party, and which was also de facto the policy of the, the Milosevic regime. That is namely, as Mr. Vulin himself has defined it very helpfully, the um, political uh, and institutional quote unquote, unification of all ethnic Serbs in the Western Balkans, so the creation of, of Western Serbia. So this, to my mind, is far and away the most pressing security threat in the region. There are others that we can talk about at great length, but, you know, gun to my head, as it were, uh, this is the one that keeps me up at night. Yeah, and Serbian Defense Minister confirmed that Vucic government is making plans to introduce mandatory military service recently. As Minister Stefanovic said, we need more soldiers so the country can have more reserve um, soldiers. And so much seems to be happening so fast, as you mentioned. And mm -hmm. some of our listeners might be more familiar or not, but the recent uh, biggest tensions, let's say, were um, between Serbia and Kosovo. Mm -hmm. and the Prime Minister of Kosovo, Albin Kurti, explained that the agreement on reciprocity for license plates of Kosovo and Serbia signed in Brussels expired on September 15, and then official Pristina was introducing this reciprocal measures. Um, right. So then we know on September 20th, Prime Minister Kurti implemented the decision requiring that all vehicles with Serbian license plates entering Kosovo had to purchase temporary plates with letters right. RKS, and that caused a lot of tension. Actually, Serbia sent military vehicles and jets to the borders, and regardless of whether those jets were super jets or MiGs, I think that that was kind of just purposeful incitement of tensions. And I just want to share what Yosa Musliu wrote, an Albanian mm. scholar at Kosovo 2.0 web portal. She said, to that end, by prolonging a fragile status quo, not actively fueling ethnic conflicts while still not working to suppress them, the government of Serbia maintains Kosovo as an ongoing security threat for Serbia. This constant tension, and then Prime Minister Edirama was in Kosovo yesterday. There is a lot of just um, jingoism that constantly mm -hmm. keeps being pumped. That said, Yasmin, let's mention what you also recently, of course, Harun, again, if you want to share any of your thoughts on this, please feel free. We Let's talk about that Open Balkan Regional Market Initiative mm -hmm. and the absence of Kosovo, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Montenegro, because I think it's related to a little bit to your first answer sure. to my question. Um, you argued in, in a recent piece for Balkan Insight that the Belgrade's um, Serbian world foreign policy is fundamentally at odds with its Open Balkan Regional Market Initiative. Can you tell a little bit more to our listeners um, about it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very simple, right? I mean, the, the basic premise behind this notion of this open Balkan or open Balkans, depending on whose phraseology you want to use, um, right, is the idea of a kind of common market. And, and to be fair, this is something that both the EU and the US have kind of been nudging the region towards for a while, especially since um, the broader project of EU enlargement in the region has obviously concluded. I mean, it seems like we might actually get official confirmation of that in the next few days, but yeah. that, that much has been obvious for a very long time, I think, mm -hmm. to anyone with a pulse. Um, so this, this idea of a common market in the region is not in and of itself bad. The, the problem, of course, is how, in particular, Serbia has gone about trying to realize um, this common market. And obviously, the uh, uh, very purposeful exclusion of Kosovo is a very significant mm -hmm. issue uh, for any kind of conversation about uh, uh, regional integration. And then, of course, um, you know, since, since the kind of original version of this agreement, which was a kind of EU-sponsored, um, uh, essentially mini Schengen kind of format, um, that, that, that all of these countries signed on to in, in, in one form or another a while back, um, you know, Serbia goes ahead and does this kind of parallel project with North Macedonia and Albania. 
And I think for a lot of folks in government and offices and, and just kind of the broader you know, policy communities in Sarajevo, Podgorica, and Pristina, um, you know, the facts on the ground have evolved so significantly just over the last few months since that kind of original Schengen format that you would really have to be um, tremendously, tremendously naive to believe that Serbia has honest um, aspirations towards economic integration, you know, free trade, uh, free movement of peoples and goods, um, at the same time as its government officials are very openly, very clearly uh, uh, stating their territorial and political pretensions against not just Kosovo, but also Bosnia-Herzegovina, also Montenegro. And really, if you follow logically the argument that they're, that they're laying out, I also include North Macedonia and uh, Croatia, because it's basically anywhere where there are ethnic Serb communities, and there are ethnic Serb communities uh, throughout the region that, you know, at least Alexander Vulin uh, wants us to believe that those people should be integrated into a singular political state, a greater Serbian state under the leadership of Alexander Vucic. So that, to my mind, is simply incompatible with any kind of, uh, uh, again, notion of free movement of people and goods. I, you know, it's, it's, it's just absurd. It's, it's a binary choice. And I mean, I would even go so far as to say that I think given the events that have transpired over the last few days and the last few weeks, I think it really behooves um, both Tirana and um, uh, Skopje to very, very seriously reconsider um, the steps that they have already taken uh, towards this nominal integration with Serbia. Um, it's, it's simply not in their political or indeed security interests to go very much further down this road. And quite on the contrary, I think we need to very start ser very seriously start thinking about some kind of alternative, essentially, you know, dare I even say alliance structure um, between mm -hmm. uh, uh, the states in the region who are likely and already are the kind of target of this unfortunate um, revanchism that we see coming from the government in Belgrade. I really appreciated how you, well, I don't even want to say bravely because as you say, it's transparent and obvious to everybody who is both familiar and wants to be honest when you said in your Balkan Insight piece, in the Western Balkans, quote unquote, the Serbian world is a fact on the ground and a threat to be confronted. Concepts like the Open Balkan Initiative are just fine ideas on paper. And we'll get to, and Harun actually wrote uh, something about EU foreign policy, and we'll talk about it in terms of, and Yasmin just now reiterated how very few people in European Union are really willing to address um, this fact that um, Yasmin has talked about. And of course, we know that the president of Kosovo, Vyosa Osmani, has recently again reiterated how she uh, thinks that Open Balkan Initiative is a dangerous initiative for the Balkan region and that it's something that is impossible that Kosovo will not accept. Both of you, you want to share your opinions about the role of Republika Srpska as a factor in this whole big puzzle? Um, um, well, I would just add, you know, that I'm struck that even before this most recent uh, discussion about open Balkan, I mean, going back to the Trump administration and some of the adventures of uh, its representatives in Kosovo and then, you know, negotiations between Kosovo and Serbia, there seems to be this idea that um, insisting on liberalizing market reforms will be some kind of panacea for, you know, um, the situation where you can't make progress on other issues. And it just seems, it just seems you know, misguided to me because uh, the two are difficult to disentangle. Um, and we're seeing it now with this open Balkan project. Mm -hmm. 
And Yasmin, you have written extensively over the years about uh, the role of Republika Srpska as a factor and Milorad Dodik. Do you want to still um, share with our listeners how dangerous um, is his uh, politics? Well, I mean, to my mind, Milorad Dodik is the single most dangerous person in the entire region. Um, mm -hmm. That is you know, notwithstanding, uh, obviously, the kind of authorial role that Alexander Vucic and, and, and his court in Belgrade has vis-a-vis -vis all of these um, movements, obviously, that we've seen in Kosovo, uh, uh, Montenegro, Bosnia, etc. Nevertheless, um, Dodik is in many ways a kind of um, wild dog on his own. And and there are scenarios which, um, you know, we can talk about, and, and, and I think people do talk about behind closed doors, as it were, um, to what extent Dodik and, and Vucic, th that there is a degree of tension between the two of them. Mm. Um, and that in many ways, Dodik has his own agenda, an agenda that is mm. not so much at odds with um, the one that Vucic has, but he has a different timeline. Um, and he also has, um, you know, his biggest priority in the world is his own political survival. Um, and Milona Dodik is someone who believes that the best way to keep himself safe and to keep him himself entrenched in power is essentially through continuously fomenting crisis. Um, the problem is that, you know, when we kind of step back and we look at the broader history of the Yugoslav dissolution, but more broadly, the history, the modern history of the Balkans, and this is obviously something that Harun is, I think, um, much more well positioned to, to, to speak at length about. But, you know, my view of the situation is that when you look at all of the major conflicts that happened in this region, essentially throughout the modern period, um, Bosnia-Herzegovina has been at the heart of virtually all of them. It is the strategic center of this entire region, not because it's the most populous or the richest country in the region, but because of its very unique position. And because unfortunately, historically, um, both great powers and local powers, Serbia, Croatia in particular, have aspired to essentially dominion and domination of Bosnia-Herzegovina. You know, when we talk about the broader dissolution of Yugoslavia, we're talking about 140 to 150,000 people approximately who were killed during the whole of the Yugoslav wars between 1991 and 2001. Fully 100,000 of those people killed were in Bosnia-Herzegovina alone. Um, and uh, uh, the Bosniak community alone comprises just under 50% of all casualties all casualties during the entirety of the Yugoslav wars. Mm -hmm. So there is a tremendous disparity of violence um, that, that has historically informed the, the kind of, shall we say, geopolitics and, and, and foreign relations of the region and indeed the military history of the region, all of which is a really roundabout way of saying that any kind of meaningful attempt towards the secession um, of the RS entity from Bosnia-Herzegovina would precipitate an immediate conflict. Um, because it's simply not going to happen without conflict. And there's no kind of, how can I put it? There's no polite analytical way that I can put this other than to say that I think self-identifying Bosnians and self-identifying Bosniaks, including those who identify as being very liberal, be being very progressive, um, you know, peace-oriented, uh, uh, reconciliation, et cetera, et cetera, um, no one is prepared to allow this to take place. Um, and Milan Adodic likewise is aware of this, 
Um, he knows that any kind of meaningful step towards the secession of the RS means conflict. The unfortunate fact, however, is that he's an individual who believes that he can profit and benefit from conflict, which is the reason why he continuously kind of toys with this idea. Um, but I think for, you know, on the off chance that there's anyone in the international community, as it were, who listens to this exchange and is still under the impression that there is some future scenario in which the RS can secede from Bosnia-Herzegovina and that will not precipitate violence that will not pre precipitate war, um, it is, to my mind, possibly the most dangerous illusion in contemporary Balkan politics. And I think that's important for people who are not just within the quote-unquote international community to hear, um, because what you're saying is, um, as frightening as it seems, uh, something that is a very uncomfortable conversation, but that really needs to be stated out loud. And when you're speaking, I just want to add, to kind of um, add more context, uh, Bosnian Advocacy Center recently issued a report, according to which uh, Milorad Dodik, um, who is currently under the U.S. sanctions, spent $24 million on lobbying efforts in Washington. Washington, D.C. And as Bosnian Advocacy Center wrote um, in, in Ismail Cidic in the, in the report, uh, one of the goals, and why I'm mentioning it here, is to finally start changing the narrative both about the importance of lobbying, as they say, and quote-unquote, uh, as well as to be a source of, for domestic and international journalists who will uh, warn in their articles or work uh, about lobbying against the interest of Bosnia and Herzegovina, but also promote the importance and efficiency of lobbying in general. Why Bosnia is not lobbying for its interests, that's a completely different conversation we could have here, but it is, uh, I, I really agree with the conclusions of the Bosnian Advocacy Center report, and that is that Bosnia and Herzegovina, as they say, cannot rely forever on old friendships and alliances, but must begin to strengthen existing ones and more importantly, create new ones. And as they reiterate, Milorad Dodik and his regime uh, understand this, and uh, they have been doing this uh, for years now, and uh, hiring different companies in the United States to give high quality legal advice and just about general presence and the outcome more of European Union, media influence, uh, connection with the Serbian and Jewish diaspora here. So I did want to kind of add this piece of information there to, to the big context, even though today I believe the high representative in Bosnia did add that under no circumstances will he allow the territorial disintegration of Bosnia and the U.S. Embassy in Sarajevo did also state that territorial integrity and sovereignty as one country and the Birchko district are guaranteed by the Dayton Peace Agreement and neither Dayton nor the Constitution of Bosnia give right to secede to any entity. But that said, and how don't you recently shared your opinion about European Union's foreign policy, at least. And Yasmin, a little bit, did mention the EU integration story, and uh, we can address it a little bit. What you shared is that, I want to quote, the animating drive of respectable European foreign policy in Bosnia is to prevent the creation of a Muslim polity. Uh, that's what you wrote, and that's why they simultaneously want to preserve the country's territorial integrity and constantly coddle its Serb and Croat nationalists. Can you elaborate a little bit to our listeners about this frightening thing, which doesn't even seem controversial anymore uh, in terms of just what we are seeing from European Union? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I believe that when I wrote that, I was reacting very specifically to this uh, diplomatic symposium that was organized by uh, the new high representative, Christian Schmidt, um, in Germany, at which the Bundestag president uh, made some comments, including this, you know, a few along the lines of um, how the, how the you know, the territorial disintegration of Bosnia and Herzegovina must be prevented, because the consequence of that would be some sort of, you know, Muslim majority 
um, state or entity, um, that would be, I believe the exact quote was, you know, an inherent source of conflict. Um, and of course, you know, there are, I can think of many reasons why the disintegration of the country uh, of Bosnia would be terrible. Um, but the fact that, you know, some resulting rump statement would have a nominally Muslim majority um, in and of itself is not necessarily um, what I would describe as a problem there. Um, and you know, this is this is the this is something that he said there in this pretty public forum. But it's something we've heard before, you know, from all sorts of um, prominent European politicians, both more recently and into the '90s. Um, it's really not any kind of secret, you know. Those of us who have read uh, the literature or paid attention to um, to the news along these lines, uh, it's not it's not very hard to pick up on it. Um, and to be clear, you know, I don't want to say that we're we're not talking about some kind of you know vast Islamophobic conspiracy or anything, you know, there's obviously supposedly realist concerns or, you know, something that Yasmin mentioned recently that I thought was very interesting was this sort of preference that many um, European diplomats betray for people like Vucic and Adi Rama as sort of these people who can make, people at the head of, you know, homogenous nation states who can make a claim to being sort of the tribal chieftains of their particular ethnic group. So there are obviously a lot of different factors at play in the geopolitics of the region. Um, but this sort of underlying Islamophobic thinking um, and, and perception of, the, of a Muslim presence in Europe as inherently dangerous um, is certainly one strand uh, that has played into that. And when I say respectable, I, I mean to say that it's simply not even a question. You know, someone like the Bundestag president can say this very comfortably in, in a formal setting. And the backlash seems to be very limited to those of us who are from the region uh, to correct him on that. Yeah, and speaking of that symposium, I want to go back to it because there were a lot more controversial things that were said there. Um, and But I do want to uh, just um, reiterate to the listeners who might be interested uh, about the Western Balkans EU integration story. And of course, we don't have time now to go over the years of mistakes or what should have been done or what was right done right, et cetera. But I do want to ask you this. Uh, Reuters today published that according to four diplomats and an internal document, the European Union is fearing, quote unquote, a political backlash in member states and can no longer agree to give a guarantee of future membership to the six Balkan countries most in the Western Balkans that is once promised a place in the club. And now we have the president of the European Commission, Ursula, uh, von der Leyen, who began a multi-day visit uh, to the countries of the Western Balkans by visiting Albania, North Macedonia, then she will go to Kosovo and you know, stay in Montenegro and visit Serbia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. And she stated both on her Twitter and, you know, uh, EU is stepping up support for the Western Balkans and we share a common European future. And the European Union Foreign Minister Joseph Borrell also called on the countries of the Western Balkans to work together with the EU to fight disinformation by raising citizens' awareness and strengthening the resilience of democracies. And there, uh, there's going to be an EU-Western Balkan summit, which would be held in um, a week, I believe, or, or less, which he assessed as the most important event at high level in the relations between the two sides. But I want to ask you, too, I mean, is this ridiculous at this point, honestly, or rather, what what should, should be, is this, sorry, actually, no EU really, old news or why are we playing this game still why is this and i saw it an hour ago online in some twitter exchanges as well when uh, somebody said well this is old news and one um 
member of international academia named not important saying well this is not true the status quo is not uh, true we know from the you know polls from france that uh, france's opposition is not really uh, correct so why are we prolonging this game uh, with the european union the integration um, spiel yeah i mean i think you know um i'm not a Political scientists, I know, I know that Yasmin will certainly have more to say on it, but I'm just, I'm just struck by the fact that for the past, what now, 25, 26 years, this has been kind of the road that was uh, presented to us, right? The, the notion that the ultimate end goal of Bosnia's post-war political development would be accession to the European Union um, has been kind of axiomatic, um, and it's just shaped an entire generation of, you know, politicians, commentators, even, you know. Um, academic analysis in, in political science and elsewhere, and you know it's a, it's kind of a dramatic thing to see it to see it unravel. But many of the figures who are still involved came up in that context. So I think when we talk about some of the friction involved there and how it's we're playing this sort of game where it's happening and it's obvious to so many of us, but people don't want to admit it. Um, I think that there has to be some element of just inertia involved in that. Um, mm -hmm. It's been the reality for so long that. I think many find it hard to think outside of so outside of those terms. Uh, have a vested interest not to even. Mm -hmm. Yasmin, yeah, would you like I, to check? Yeah, no, I think that's a really really good point that Hanno just raised. I mean, uh, and I think in, in some ways, you know, putting aside the kind of the the big politics of it, the great kind of you know high level politics of it, as it were, I think Hanno's point is especially well taken because you know for folks who are maybe familiar with the, 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 the way that the policy community in Europe in particular operates vis-a-vis -vis the Western Balkans, which also includes a lot of people in academia, it's, you know, it is a, a kind of industry unto itself. Um, and there is a several generations of scholars and policy analysts who have come out, not just out of the region, but out of Europe as a whole, working specifically on this topic of um, EU enlargement in the Western Balkans, right? It's not just dissertations that have been written, it's been books, it's been, you know, millions of dollars, if not more, uh, spent on conferences, research, publications, da 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 So there's, a, there's really a kind of institutional commitment to this topic because this is, I mean, for lack of a better term, what people made their lives and careers on. And so suddenly when it now comes out that, hey, guess what, EU enlargement is over and it probably wasn't ever going to happen anyway. Um, and, you know, we, we probably should have gotten off this, uh, uh, off this train quite a number of years ago and, and made some kind of alternative arrangements. Um, you know, this is, this is very difficult for a lot of people to, um, for lack of, I mean, for lack of a better term, it's very difficult for them to handle because they don't have anything else to add to the conversation. Um, they, they don't have a plan B either. Um, and they also recognize that they are implicated in having sold the region and its citizens a false bill of goods for a very, very long time. Uh, I think for people like myself and, and Harun and, and, and others that we could name here who I think have for far longer taken a much more, at the very least, critical view. And you know, I'm always at pains to point out that I'm the furthest thing from being anti-EU um, you know, I think it would be fantastic. It's just that the actual politics of it, how it has been done to date, have been catastrophic. And I've been pleading for years at every opportunity that I've ever had with, you know, EU policymakers, policymakers from the member states that, hey, we, we need to do something concrete. We need a plan B. Um, it's very clear to myself and others that, you know, enlargement, as we have hitherto talked about it, is not going to happen. So what is the plan B? We need a plan B. Because, you know, 
it's it's actually unacceptable from a political standpoint, um, and and you know from from the theory and practice of international relations, as it were, to not have a backup plan because when there's no backup plan, there's a void, and that void will be filled, and it's presently being filled by people like Vucic and his Sevsky Svet. It's being filled by Russia and China and even Turkey to some extent, right? There are other actors on the scene who will want to engage in the Western Balkans if the EU and the broader West does not want to. Yeah. And then the question for us and the people in the region um, you know, becomes, okay, well, what are the values and what are the interests that these other actors are bringing to the region? And you know, as somebody who does identify as, um, you know, as being, I would say, progressive and liberal, and, 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 and I am categorically committed to the idea of democracy and the rule of law, you know, it, it alarms me greatly uh, when I see Putin uh, 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 and she and others, um, you know, uh, 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 running roughshod over the region, imposing their values and their norms, and 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 incorporating the region into their kind of global projects. Um, so this is unfortunately the moment that we're in right now, where the EU um, doesn't have the capacity to act as a credible foreign policy actor, um, or even just a credible actor in the region writ large. But at the same time, it is also either incapable or refusing to yeah. offer any kind of alternative framework. And so in that sense, this is really the worst of all worlds. Um, and I would hope that, you know, perhaps among, you know, my colleagues in the policy and academic communities, it would be us who would be able to, at the very least, start having some conversations, um, you know, more concrete conversations about where can this region actually go mm -hmm. in the future? Because, you know what, I've been wrong about plenty of things in my time. I'm gonna be wrong about things in the future. Um, let's let's just move on okay so the eu thing didn't work out and a bunch of people kind of put all their eggs in that basket fine let's just let's just move on i'm actually not interested in dunking on anyone i'm not interested in being right at the stake uh, or at the sake of of the welfare and lives of millions of people in the western balkans i i, I do want us to be able to move move forward but that actually requires talking very seriously about the where the region is right now and the region right now is in a pretty bad place and 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 apparently getting worse and you touched a little bit upon it in this um, political context, but I do want to continue this conversation by mentioning that one part of that um, famous Harms thread, as I will call it from now on, um, is that he cited an example. So I will just cite as an example of many um, occasions, similar occasions about a conference at the University of Vienna that was dedicated to narratives and stages, quote unquote, of victimhood around the genocide in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And Harun raised his objection about no mention of accelerating denialism or virtually um, any Bosnian or Bosniak speakers for that matter. And, and that uh, tweet and that thread um, erupted. I mean, each one of those thoughts that you shared resonated with so many people who then um, first very often do talk about uh, this in their communities, but they who started and adding, uh, commenting, sharing their experiences, personal and professional, that reflected similar ideas. So I do want to share, ask you for your, um, can you elaborate a little bit uh, on this? Because we might talk a lot about this, but I do, do want our listeners who might not be Bosnian, but who are listening to this podcast to understand, and many maybe who might um, kind of um, see themselves in their own kind of community in terms of representation, or um, rather like, I, like let's, let's just, who can write or who can work um, about on Bosnia and Herzegovina? 
Yeah, so I mean, just to answer the very last question there in terms of who can who can write about it, who can study it, I think the short answer is anybody. You know, just about anybody can write or study about it. I, um, you know, maybe with the exception of actual war criminals or you know entities that are responsible for war crimes, uh, because they too have tried to you know set the record for uh, publicize their narratives of the recent past. But beyond that, just about anybody can. Um, and I'm glad that you asked the question because obviously, you know, with that with that whole thread and the discussion that followed that came up, and I I know that we you know kind of I feel we have to address it, but you know, in, in a way it is a little frustrating that we do have to address it, right? For at least two reasons. Um, one, because as far as I'm aware, I don't think actually any of us on the, let's say Bosnian camp ever actually suggested that, you know, non-Bosnians or whatever would not, should not write about Bosnia. Um, that, that was just not an argument that was being made. Um, you know, I can't, I can't vouch for, you know, cartoons with like 15 followers, but you know, those of us who are there with first and last names, like, no one was seriously just suggesting anything of that sort. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it too is that, I mean, even if we for some reason had, like what what consequence of that would there be? You know, what how would we actually enforce something like that? Because that really brings it back to this question of power. And the reality is that the relevant power dynamics that I was trying to get at a bit with that thread would go in completely the opposite direction. Um, and you can have someone like, okay, just to give a very specific example, you know, Jessica Stern and that whole book about Radovan Karadzic and, and her war criminal that tried to, you know, provocatively humanize Radovan Karadzic. I mean, the fact that that can be so easily published, that it can get a major publisher, that it can get plaudits and praise from prominent academics at major academic institutions, that it can receive space in the major, you know, media in the United States. What would it take for a Bosnian person to be able to present a, a similar work on, you know, their experience with Radovan Karadzic and, you know, just the genocide in Bosnia in general? Uh, I mean, I think the answer is self-evident, really. And, and it's worth pointing to that, you know, to the extent that people from our community who were rightly outraged with that, um, you know, reacted against that book, a lot of it, you know, so many of us, we don't come from some sort of point of institutional backing you know there's no big bosnia lobby there's there's no bosnian state effort to counter you know propaganda or whatever the vast majority of us are basically like refugees and other people who ended up in western countries due to everything that happened in the 90s and you know in that sense it's been kind of an uphill climb to have some sort of platform and to be able to raise our concerns and be part of this conversation so that these sorts of things aren't just out there and and, and unquestioned um and that's, you know, one specific example, but I think in terms of that thread in general, that's kind of what I was getting at. It's not that I think, certainly not that, you know, we need to draw some sort of strict native, non-native binary or anything like that. It's just that, you know, what is this discourse around Bosnia, particularly in, in that case that we're seeing in the German-speaking countries, and what is its relationships with this wider context that exists outside of the ivory tower? And what is its relationship with actual Bosnian people, and in particular, the survivors of Sebrenica? Um, so that's something that there's, there's much more to say about, including with that conference, but also some of the other things I mentioned. I just Jasmine, would you like to, really, to yeah. yeah, I just really wanted to chime in on that, uh, one of those last points that Haran made, um, because I ended up 
kind of thinking about it for days, this notion you know, that he raises sarcastically of the, of the big Bosnia lobby. Um, I, think, I think it really cannot be overstated the extent to which, um, and, and you know, yeah, this goes back to the point that you were raising earlier with the, uh, the report um, that, uh, that came out recently about, about lobbying from the Bosnian Advocacy Center. Um, you know, the, like even that name, right, Bosnian Advocacy Center, mm-hmm. um, and I've worked with them. They're they're a tremendous group of young people. You know, they organized a, a really wonderful event um, a, a couple months ago that that I was very happy to moderate. Um, you know, with Senator Lieberman. And the thing is, our community more broadly, um, all of us who identify as Bosnian, um, which is of course is more so than simply the Bosnian community. Um, you know there is nothing behind us. There is no money behind us. There is no institutional yep. power behind us. Uh, you know, there is no chair in Bosnian studies. Uh, there is no scholarships of any meaningful sort that are offered to our uh, uh, kids. Um, our families, including those in the diasporas, the, these kind of intergenerational families that have settled in places like Canada or the US or even you know, parts of Europe, you know, our families are still dealing with legacies of PTSD, uh, uh, legacies of trauma in various forms, uh, and all the things that come with that, whether it's domestic abuse, whether it's uh, 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 substance abuse issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's really important to highlight when we look at something like the platform that is Twitter and social media more broadly, it creates this illusion of power. You know, mm-hmm. and I get that a lot because whatever, mm-hmm. I have X amount of followers and people think, oh, well, who's this guy? And he must have, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm just a dude with a Twitter account that, mm-hmm. that, and I've been doing this for a while and I've been fortunate that, you know, I've got a little bit of an audience. There's no money behind me. There's no institution behind me. Um, and, and I think, you know, Hanun is somebody who I know personally, you know, I've seen him grind and hustle. And I, I know so many other people like that who have had to overcome these tremendous, tremendous uh, uh, boundaries and barriers because there is no institutional support behind this, up to and including, and this is something that you raised uh, earlier as well, you know, we don't have backing from the Bosnian state either, mm-hmm. right? A lot of this kind of quote unquote lobbying or advocacy that, that so many of us are doing is purely voluntary. And oftentimes it's literally attempting to fill an institutional gap things that, for instance, a functional Ministry of Foreign Affairs should be doing is actually left to, you know, a bunch of millennials with Twitter accounts, right? Because that is unfortunately another legacy of the war and the genocide, that that, the Bosnia-Herzegovina as a state is so fragmented um, and so divided. And so it is almost up to private initiative um, and private individuals to uh, uh, promote and elevate and advocate on behalf of the interests of, of the broader Bosnian community and the Bosnian state and in the international community. Um, and, uh, you know, we're doing the best that we can. I think we have a lot of lessons to still learn. I think that's, I'm a huge champion of uh, learning from other diasporas, the Jewish diaspora, and I think historically of critical importance for the Bosnian Bosniak community um, because they were champions in the 1990s during the genocide when it counted most. Um, and, 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 you know, they laid that road in many ways that we need to learn from. Um, but, but there's so many other, I would even say like the Kosovar diaspora in many ways has done a better job vis-a-vis some of these core political issues than the Bosnian diaspora has. And so I'm, I'm, you know, 
I'm trying to use my platform to speak to many of these issues, but also trying to think about the kinds of institutional legacies that we can leave behind us for the kids that are coming up behind us who I hope won't have to deal with the same barriers and boundaries that I think all three of us and kind of our cohort are still dealing with to this day, even those of us who are, you know, perhaps in a slightly better kind of socioeconomic position now or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yes, a million times yes. And um, just to kind of reiterate to the listeners and one piece, if they want further reading on what we've been saying, I really want to warmly recommend uh, Adnan Delalit's Wings of Denial that he wrote on Mangal Media. I really want to, I read it this morning and it is like a classic that I think 20, 30 years later will be able to be read. And I, allow me just... Um, 30 seconds, I want to read one paragraph from that, which kind of nicely summarizes everything that we've said. And he's referring to Peter Hanke, which we haven't mentioned so far, but you know, Nobel Prize in Literature was awarded in 2019 to an Austrian writer who is a Bosnian genocide denier. But in, in a grand scheme of things, as Adnan Delalic and someone who I really learn a lot from, so saying hi to him virtually, he writes, Peter Hanke gets to spend his time on artful self-expression and formal experimentation. As suggested by the Nobel Committee, he gets to explore, quote-unquote, the periphery and the specificity of human experience, end of quote. He makes use of his powerful European passport to travel to the killing fields in the periphery, places the displaced and exiled can't return to, and produce literary selfies. European intellectuals and institutions then declare his colonialist corpus as representative of European civilization. Thus, hierarchies are being maintained. We, meanwhile, are being forced to invest an enormous amount of time to protect ourselves from this violence, including those of us who are lucky enough to somehow obtain a Western passport. Hanke, by contrast, easily received a Yugoslav passport from Milosevic regime in 1999, while hundreds of thousands of Kosovo Albanians were being stripped of theirs. As Toni Morrison says, racism keeps you explaining over and over your reason for being. I just got goosebumps, honestly, and uh, and so many of these paragraphs and what Yasmin just uh, said and Harun reiterated as well. And so many people did chime in online and shared professional and personal experiences. And it is this constant both dehumanization, but also what Harun wrote, I think that there is a rise of self-consciousness among young academics or uh, people from different branches who don't have to just be uh, working in the academia who are doing their best within their resources and a scope of possibilities to raise awareness because gen genocide denialism on one hand, as uh, we have mentioned here, and Harun touched upon Jessica Stern's book, Besides genocide denial, uh, and that is the questioning the number of victims of the Srebrenica, massacre, uh, Srebrenica genocide, complaining on an international uh, anti-Serb conspiracy and glorifying Bosnian Serb wartime leaders, which are just some of the tactics by the Srebrenica genocide deniers, we have uh, now a situation when genocide research shows that it has gone to academic literary sphere at international level. And Yasmin wrote about great replacement theory um, for many outlets and why, Yasmin, you can tell us just shortly uh, about it. How is the essence of Mladic's project uh, important in the Western far right um, contemporary thought? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it goes to, you know, it's very much in conversation with the with the quote that you just read from Adnan's marvelous essay, right? It, it is this idea that um, 
as we have seen this kind of broader anti-refugee, anti-Muslim, um, xenophobic, also anti-Semitic turn in, in European and Western politics more broadly, um, self-identifying members of the far right as all kind of functional ideologues always look to the past to find examples of the kinds of regimes that they want to imagine in the future. Um, you know, they're in a perverse way, um, the far right is um, uh, very much obsessed with history. I mean, in their own extremely toxic and malign way, um, but they have a, you know, a very peculiar obsession with, with history as it were. And I think for them, um, the experience of the Bosnian genocide and, and, and in particular the kind of the, the ideological discourse and the, the narratives and the rhetoric that came out of people like Radovan Karadzic above all because he did style himself as this kind of quote-unquote philosopher and a poet and all this kind of jazz, um, you know, but also Ratko Mladic and, you know, his infamous speech upon um, the entry of Serb nationalist forces in, in uh, Srebrenica in July of 1995, um, you know, taking revenge against the Bahias, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is exactly the language of the far right, right? This is, this is exactly the discourse, the, the, the civilizational clash, um, this kind of binary conflict between nameless racialized Muslim hordes that represent everything dark and sinister in the East and, and um, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, their idea of, you know, Serbia on the ramparts of Christendom, defending defending um, Western civilization, quote unquote, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, I mean, this is nearly verbatim, the great replacement discourse, right, down to and including the whole obsession about demography and being outbred and being uh, replaced and, and, and all the rest of it. And of course, there's a tremendous malleability to this discourse, right, um, you know, in, in parts of the American Southwest. Um, as we saw during the El Paso shooting, uh, you know, it can be used to apply to um, uh, uh, Latino and Hispanic people. Um, in other parts, in another context, it can specifically refer to Muslims, it can refer to Jewish people, um, it can be expended, extended to the LGBT community, anyone that can be characterized or, or conceived of as some kind of threat to this, you know, very peculiar uh, notion of white Western civilization and masculinity, um, that that is who can be swapped in. It's just the case that in the in the particular context of the Bosnian genocide, um, and I think in specifically vis-a-vis -vis the question of kind of Muslims as a demographic threat to Christendom and Western civilization, it is in some ways the most salient um, and the most acute threat, at least in the in the imagination of the far right. Which is again why when people um, like the Christchurch terrorist or um, the the um, uh, 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 you know, people like Anders Breivik and others, when they look to Bosnia, when they look to Kosovo, what they are seeing is a model of the kinds of societies that they want to replicate in their own countries, right? This is what they want. They want this, um, they want this cull. They want this, this, this killing. They want this kind of confrontation um, in the same way that they look to Nazi Germany or that they look to the Confederacy or that they look to the apartheid regimes of Southern Africa. Um, you know, those are also models, much like as the Bosnian genocide and the kind of Greater Serbia project has now emerged as a relatively contemporary and recent model. And Harun, tell me, you're... Um an expert on this and very familiar i do want to ask you about your opinion again about this anti-muslim um, rhetoric that's been present for so long and in this region do you agree or could you elaborate a little bit about 
a quote, but a book, for example, and there are many books which Fikret Karcic and other scholars wrote. One that I want to share here, it's from the book Other European Muslims. The quote says, um, the Balkan Muslims have been trying to preserve their existence, especially as a distinct religious cultural entity in their homeland since the end of the Ottoman rule in the region. The consecutive hostile regimes did not allow the Balkan Muslims to consolidate and to develop their theoretical and institutional responses to the challenges of life in the European Southeast. And of course, we know about the painful but slow restoration of Christian Europe, et cetera. But can you elaborate a little bit to our listeners so that I understand the, the historical longevity of this idea of, um, or just to add on what Yasmin has been saying? Yeah, yeah, I think there are, there are things to be said there. Um, I mean, first off, to start with that, you know, Fikr Kacic is certainly an authority on the history of Islamic institutions in Bosnia-Herzegovina, so if people are interested in that sort of thing, to definitely um, yeah. check out his work, um, as well as the work of his sons more recently, who are also doing some really Absolutely. good research. Um, but beyond that, you know, given the, given the talk we just had about this great replacement theory in the place of the Balkans, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think what Justin is saying is very valid, um, but I also think that what sometimes we lose sight of is that in the not so distant past, you know, mm-hmm. in say the early 20th century or earlier decades, um, in many ways the situation was uh, about these, you know, we had these conspiracies about, you know, the greater placement, Muslim birth rates, this and that. In a not so distant past, the situation was almost reversed, uh, especially in the Balkans. There was this very real fear that Muslims in a place like Bosnia Herzegovina had that their very existence was threatened. Yep. Um, you know, both in terms of mass emigration to the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the ambiguities of living under a non-Muslim rule for the first time, you know, after many many centuries. In, in the case of the 1878 Austro-Hungarian occupation. Um, and also, you know, when you get to 1912, 1913, the, the Balkan Wars, which are really the foundational historical context for the entire Kosovo conflict and really much of, you know, what carried through and what would become Yugoslavia after that, um, you know, Muslims in Bosnia in particular got to see this massive widespread um, violence against Muslim communities in neighboring regions. So uh, for such a long time, and I think this is part of what uh, what Professor Kacic is getting at is um, there was this real sort of insecurity and then sense of question of well, would we as a community even survive uh, physically, you know, in light of migration, in light of state violence and, and so on. And that has also, of course, profoundly informed, you know, Bosnian Muslim intellectual and sociopolitical responses. And it's, it's important for making sense of the entire kind of trajectory and development of Bosnian Muslim political thought uh, through the 20th century. Um, so I think that kind of connects both what we were just talking about and then also um, Professor Karcic's statement. Um, one thing I would also add to that, though, is just that even though there were, you know, successive hostile regimes and such, it's important to keep in mind, too, that there was always some room for maneuver. Um, you know, and I'm thinking in particular about something like the Islam's Kazaids, uh, the, the Islamic community. And here I can refer back to, you know, research by myself and by some of my friends uh, in history. I mean... Um, my friend Leila Amzi, who's a professor at Rutgers now, wrote a great dissertation. It's about to be a book mm. in which, among other things, she looks at, you know, the origins of the Islamic Kazainza in 1878 and with the Austro-Hungarian occupation. I mean, in many ways, this was basically a colonial institution. Uh, this was an attempt by Vienna to create a new kind of local Islamic religious hierarchy that would sever ties between Muslims in Bosnia on the one hand and the Ottoman Empire on the other. But what you see over time is that locals, you know, um, 
take up those institutions and, and find a use for them on their own terms. You know, it becomes a place for, you know, various local Muslim reformists to pursue their own agenda of communal reform, pedagogical reform, all these sorts of projects. And it culminates in something that I wrote about in my dissertation, actually, which was in the early 1910s when the great reformist thinker, um, Jemaluddin Ceausevich, um, becomes a new race ulama. I mean, this was a very kind of revolutionary moment. They were making appeals to this new constitutional language, to uh, elections and civil liberties, and, and this, you know, context that they were living in, 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 in the wider region. Um, so even though, you know, there were anxieties about living under a non-Muslim power and um, about the fate of Muslims as a community in that region, there was still some room for maneuver. And a big part of the story is just how these sorts of different intellectuals and activists were able to um, exploit that and, and what they were able to create from that as well. That's a big part of the story as well. And that is an incredibly amazing and fascinating part of the story that I'm personally very interested in learning more about and why I believe in the grand scheme of Islamic studies, uh, what you ha have been talking about beyond just political context is so important. And I'm so grateful that you shared just a glimpse of that uh, scholarship that I think anybody who is interested more should, should learn about. I do um, want to then mention, just come back now to 2021 and something that Yasmin did point out so precisely how it, Serb nationalists were so happy about the success of Taliban because uh, continuing to this anti-Muslim uh, situation and idea. Yasmin, you can just um, share a little bit uh, about it because it is a continuation of this Islamophobic prevalent idea in their heads. Well, yeah, I mean, so this is this is obviously the great irony, right? Um, the, the same people who will um, refer to Sarajevo as Jalalabad or will refer to Sarajevo as Tehran um, when the United States finally withdrew from Afghanistan, um, you know, literally the exact same people were were trumpeting and hailing the success of the Taliban as supposedly this great anti-imperialist force, um, you know, and, and supposedly anti-colonial force. Um, and of course, very specifically, I mean, the thing that we were seeing come out of the kind of Serb nationalist social media discourse, including, you know, very prominent um, people who have positions on Russian state media, et cetera, et cetera, was this idea that, you know, Kosovo and um, Bosnia were next, right? This idea that, um, oh, you see, you know, this is the United States withdrawing from international primacy. Um, this is the end of the quote unquote empire. And so, uh, you know, Kosovo primarily is next. And I think, it, you know, there's, there's, there's so many ways to unpack um, that discourse and that idea. The one that's really interesting and fascinating to me, though, is, and I, I think it's important that we talk about Kosovo in this context, this idea that Kosovo is some territory that, that is waiting to be, quote unquote, liberated by Serbia or the broader Serb nationalist establishment, a country where, you know, upwards of 92, 93% of the population is ethnic Albanian and has, um, let's just put it very strong views about once again being under Serbian dominion, right? It, it, it once again actually brings to the fore immediately the specter of violence and genocide, because the only way, practically speaking, that you could have a situation where Serbia once again has dominion administration over Kosovo is if 92, 93% of the population is no longer there. 
in other words, they've been expelled or they've been exterminated. In other words, a repeat of you know, what happened in large parts of eastern and northeastern Bosnia over the course of the Bosnian War and the Bosnian Genocide. And so, uh, you know, it is it is the lack of progress, it is the lack of any kind of meaningful transformation in, unfortunately, so much of um, the Serbian mainstream. Um, and I, you know, I'm always at pains to use the language of Serb nationalism because it, it is not accurate to say that this is the view of all ethnic Serbs or all Serbians. There are progressive liberal anti-chauvinist forces in Serbia and across the region, uh, uh, you know, among ethnic Serbs. But the unfortunate reality is that as far as, you know, the mainstream discourse is concerned um, in Serbia, it, it is dominated by historical revisionist positions. It is dominated by chauvinist and xenophobic positions. Um, you know, you can you you can turn on major any major daily news program in the country or open any major newspaper, and you will be confronted with the language of chauvinism, with the language of historical revisionism, and ultimately, it is also the stated official policy of the government in Serbia, right? And so, the idea that these people would then, you know cross-identify with the Taliban or with any other kind of supposed anti-American group in the world, to me, is um, it is extremely telling um, because it, it points to the kind of categorical and fundamental reactionary nature of this project um, that, 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 that they espouse. And, and, and in that, by that same token, um, how it is just a categorical threat, not only to um, you know, predominantly Muslim communities, whether they are Albanian or Bosniak or any of the other ethnic Muslim communities in the region, or indeed now increasingly ethnic Montenegrins, uh, uh, and I would even say ethnic Macedonians, ethnic Croatians, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but more broadly, it is an assault and it is a threat to any kind of notion of, you know, constitutional rule of law, constitutional governance, liberal democracy, all the things that, you know, all three of us in various ways in our lives have been uh, fortunate to 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 experience and and I would think to a great extent want to replicate um, in Bosnia Herzegovina. So you know this this is the thing. I, I it's it isn't merely that um, you know what keeps me up at night to go back to that <laughs> uh, phrase and it's true. You know it isn't merely that I am aware of the fact that given the right circumstances that the people in power in Serbia would literally like to kill me <laughs> and, and the people in my community and, and that they are advocates for that kind of policy. It's not just that. It's not just about my own personal, you know, background or personhood or my identity, whatever it may be. Um, and it's usually not what people think it is, <laughs> but it's also um, the fact that at a, at a very kind of fundamental political and philosophical level, this is a threat to anyone that aspires to live in, in, in any kind of form of freedom or security. Um, and and in, that's, in that sense, I mean, this project that has kind of reared its very ugly head again in, in Belgrade is a threat to, to Europe. It's, it's not just, you know, Muslims in the Balkans who need to be concerned about this. It, it is a categorical threat for, for democracy as such in Europe, whether it's recognized as such or not, and, and very clearly it's not, I mean, given the conversation that we've been having today. Harun, uh, please feel free to add um, anything to what Yasmin um, elaborated on before I ask you about the episode of Chosen Trauma, which is something when Yasmin tells me, uh, just said something that keeps me up at night. I think that one of the most recent 
fiascos that happened in the new address was uh, this occasion, uh, I believe, was it the same symposium that you previously addressed when um, German historian college, uh, Mari Janine College, gave a speech before a high-profile diplomatic uh, symposium, and including the high representative, Christian Schmidt, and towards the end of her speech, she singled out the recent uh, Valentininsko uh, last high representative, his decision to outlaw genocide denial, and she said it angered the Serb nationalists, and then she compared that uh, with uh, a claim that so-called, so uh, quote-unquote, Bosniak nationalists have made Srebrenica their chosen trauma to avoid reconciliation with Serbs. Um, can I'm, I'm <sighs> what, what what to say? I <laughs> it's an open question. I mean, what what can one say um, to, to that? Uh, it's to me, it's kind of absurd on a number of levels. I mean, um, the fact that we can talk about Srebrenica in a matter of choice, um, you know, to begin with, um, and then these allegations that is something that's being uh, instrumentalized for political purposes. I mean, it's all, it, it, it's all deeply frustrating. Um, you know, I would just, but that was one of the things that I wanted to raise with that thread. Um, you know, unfortunately, I hate, I hate to go back to the conference in Vienna, but, you know, this language of staging and such, there, there seems to be this emphasis that we're seeing in, in, in these German-speaking, you know, academic contexts where the interest in Srebrenica is about how it's this kind of nationalist project or like a Bosniak nationalist, um, you know, performativity of some sort, you know, and it's just really bewildering given that we still have you know, um, I mean, high-level genocide denial, um, the casual embrace of Peter Huntke and the sort of trivialization of his association with war criminals. Uh, shortly after that, I finished that thread, we had a new uh, magazine cover for Süddeutsche Zeitung that, you know, talked about, it was just this glowing little puff piece that talked about Huntke's association with war criminals, you know, alongside his interest in Bob Dylan records and life as a grandpa or whatever. So, I mean, we have this trivialization and, and outright genocide denial. We have, you know, the continued obstacles that survivors of Srebrenica face on the ground in Srebrenica um, and, and, and in Republika Srpska uh, more generally. And, you know, it just, um, it's, it's, it's infuriating that the focus seems to be more on this, like, I don't know, abstract um, academic study of the constructed aspects of, of Srebrenica commemoration. Um, yeah, I think that's the gist of what I would want to say on that front. And I think after that, a lot of people, and I don't speak German, but uh, Jasmin does, or um, many other who do, have added that um, that was not apparently the first time that this particular historian has said this. Uh, in another article in uh, 2020, November, she also qualified the genocide in Srebrenica as a chosen trauma by Bosniaks then as well, um, or repeated that. Do you want to add uh, something to that, uh, Yasmin? I do uh, just uh, want to mention, or maybe where this conversation can take direction, what Emir Sulagic, who is the director current, uh, of Srebrenica Memorial Center, he wrote, and this is my translation, he wrote it in Bosnian, he said, um, strong efforts, millions of marks of budget money invested in the denial of genocide should be understood in that context. Serbian nationalism and its traditional allies with German and other Central European nationalism actually want to define our lived and historical experience. Denial of genocide is not an end in itself, but an integral part of the historical narrative, which was once successfully imposed on us. 
and then he elaborates um, how the difference, you know, from one, he says, is from the beginning of this, um, this is only one occasion. And secondly, equally important is that Yugoslavia objectively was not our state. But what do you want to say anything, Yasmin, about this idea of uh, defining our lived um, and historical experience? We did mention it uh, throughout right. this conversation so far, uh, brushed upon it, but uh, specifically about um, what's been going on recently and what do you think these conversations online and offline are right. leading towards? So, I mean, first of all, I, I, you know, we were talking earlier about this notion of institutions and you bring up um, Emmett and, and the Srebrenica Memorial Center. And, you know, there is an institution that, that, that now exists and largely thanks to, I think, the leadership of people like um, Emmett Sudagic and, and, and this incredible team that he has around him. Um, and it's so important, the work that they're doing right now, um, you know, that they're digitizing so much of this information, so many of these narratives, so many of these accounts from survivors, from their children, um, you know, alongside institutions, for instance, like the World Childhood Museum in Sarajevo, right? There's now a very small number of these institutions that exist, but, but they're doing so much heavy lifting um, to simply place the story um, of, of, of the Bosniak people and the Bosnian people more broadly in our recent and very unfortunate experiences during the 90s, but also situating them in a very important historical context. Um, and that, that, I mean, that is something I think that all three of us, if you know, we were to have these conversations for a more sustained period of time, I think we would find how much historical erasure has taken place um, in, in terms of, you know, what the early 20th century looked like, um, what the late 19th century looked like, what the mid 20th century looked like, right? Um, and, 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 you know, traumas and these kinds of um, historical experiences have, have as the effect on the lives of individuals to, to sever these narratives. Um, you know, for instance, I actually have very little information about, for instance, like my great grandparents, like I know very little about them because of the very painful and difficult historical circumstances that my grandparents and then my parents found themselves in. So, so even my ability to tap into my own, into my own story, as it were, in that sense, is um, mitigated by the political realities that you know my family and, and the communities that they were embedded in had to go through. Um, both in the early 20th century and at its close, right? So that's one point. The other point, though, to go back to the conversation um, and the points that Hanun raised, you know, this idea of a quote-unquote chosen trauma, outside of the completely revolting um, kind of premise of it, what it belies is a tremendous amount of hostility and, 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 a, and dehumanization of Bosniak and Bosnian people more broadly, right? Because, I mean, how... What kind of madman do you have to be to believe that anyone would choose this? That you would choose to have gone through the experiences that any of us went through, right? And I'm always at pains to say, you know, my family is from Sarajevo. We were very fortunate that we escaped Sarajevo very early on in the war because I'm cognizant of the experiences Absolutely. of the people who stayed behind. And of course, the people in Eastern Bosnia, in Srebrenica, in Gienina, Foča, Zvornik, and on down the list, because I know what they went through, right? And, and I encountered them in, in refugee centers in Croatia and Germany. And, and, you know, as a young child, I was exposed to those experiences and those narratives. And even then I understood, you know, in my own very childlike way, what it was to be privileged in the very peculiar way that we were privileged because, you know, we got out when we got out and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So what kind of 
mental framework and moral and ethical framework do you exist in that you would be a scholar and you would be aware of Srebrenica and Foča and Zvornik and Bielina and Priedor and all the rest of it. And you would look at that and you would say, uh, it's a, uh, well, you see, this is discursive. This is a narrative. This is performative. It, 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 it belies a, a really, truly deep-seated um, chauvinism, and, and I would even go so far as to say genuinely hatred um, of those people, because you could not actually articulate that idea um, in any other sense, unless there was un unless there was something revolting to you about these people's humanity. And it's the same thing when we're talking about homophobia, when we're talking about anti-Semitism. Hatred is at its root. It is it is the animating principle. And I think for many people in um, you know kind of the broader Western Academy, and and you know Harun has been in the thick of some of these conversations, as as have you, of course. You know, we're talking now to some of our colleagues whether they're German, Austrian, British, American, whatever. And, and they're coming back to us now. And they, why, has the, you know, why has the discourse suddenly become so sharp? And I think a lot of the reason is because now there's finally a generation of scholars, of activists, of thinkers, of writers, et cetera, et cetera, who are able to give voice with relevant platforms. Uh, uh, and of course, our platforms still pale in comparison, right? This was Harun's point earlier. None of us here could write a book uh, about anything that would get, you know, top billing in the New York Times. Never mind a kind of quasi-erotic uh, uh, hagiography of, of, of a war criminal and a, a genocidaire, right? So th that's that's the reality of the situation that we're only now in a point where we have any kind of platform. And the mere act of speaking our truth and speaking our narratives and telling our own stories, that in itself is being perceived as an act of hostility on the part of certain people who have been entrenched in certain very comfortable narratives, um, ensconced in institutions where nobody has come along to them and said, hey, what you're saying is deeply, deeply revolting and so not okay. And if it were about any other group of people in any other context, you would be called out for it, right? Um, and, and so this is, I think, we're in the midst of a really profound generational shift. I, I really, really believe that. And it's not, it's not um, because I'm sort of high in my own supply and I think I'm like on the cutting edge of history or something, but I see it in, 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 um, in kids younger. You know, when, when I look at the kids who are coming up who are in their early 20s, even who are in their teens, and I get some of their emails and, you know, they're asking me about, hey, like, my professor or my teacher said this thing and this came up and like this kind of seems wrong but I can't mm -hmm. articulate why um and then you start having these conversations with them and it's like okay right so they have different expectations the very fact that they know to ask the very fact that they have someone to ask the fact that they uh, you know those alarm bells are going off in their head I think speaks to some very small but very important progress um that we've made um suffice it to say I don't see the um the civility of the discourse improving anytime soon because I, I, you know, as it, I, I'm going on, sorry, but like, I, I just, I, I don't think any of us are coming back from, from this position, right? Like there's no, there's no going back. Uh, nobody's going to be like, well, you know what, actually I, it's fair that the Austrians have a slightly different perspective on the Bosnian genocide. No, it's actually not okay. Mm. Um, and, 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 and the aim will be to, to, to evacuate them from the discourse um, because no, you know, it's 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 very no clear more. that you know, 
no more. It's just, it's just not gonna fly. And like, if that means um, that we're not invited to polite conferences anymore, that's fine. We'll make our own conferences because um, now the power dynamic has shifted to some extent and, and we do have access to certain kinds of resources that will allow us to take, um, to take those kinds of initiatives and those kinds of steps and we'll keep creating them creatively and this is one platform is allowing um, this sort of conversations to thrive i do want to ask you harun about both your opinions on this uh, trauma and intergenerational um, legacies and your idea of what might be going on uh, in the future in terms of these conversations and i just want to add this idea of mentorship that um, yasmin you mentioned and you often reiterate and emphasize online i do want to say that two things how this idea of I'm still being mentored, in, even if they don't know, in terms of how I keep learning. I want to mention, for example, a really great scholar, Dina Bechirovich, who is extremely kind and knowledgeable and expert and genocide on the River Drina and numerous papers that she's been writing. And then she's always incredibly um, kind and uh, willing to teach me and offer her uh, knowledge whenever I'm in touch with her. And I don't know whether I will cut this, but I do want to say it because Yasmin mentioned it a couple of years ago, I uh, had one of the most important conversations with um, Haris Halilovic, uh, who is a Bosnian Australian scholar in, uh, and uh, who is very active and who actually coined the phrase 11th phase of genocide, which is genocide triumphalism, where I told him that after reading his book about Srebrenica, of course, I cried a lot, but where I uh, told him how I feel guilty or I asked him whether I have a right to talk about this when I just started uh, being more vocal and write about it because uh, I was not there in Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, when, when that was happening. And I, I almost felt like I needed a permission by somebody like him who lost so many more, so much more. And he was so... He was so incredible in terms of first, um, not just kindness, and I, I, I don't want to get emotional, but he was just saying, you don't need my permission in the sense that Bosnia is a story of so many stories that keep, need to be kept told. But that idea of always being aware of so much atrocity and loss and his um, kind of permission, which then allowed me to just put gas and feel that I should use any resource that I have to uh, just defend my people uh, in the face of so much more power asymmetry that we have uh, addressed um, somehow in many occasions during this conversation. So that said, again, I don't know whether I will cut it, but it's very personally important. And if it stays, I want to thank Haris for uh, all the mentorship again that he has um, offered and continues to offer to all all younger scholars. So Harun, please, to go back to your opinion about this idea of trauma and your thoughts about the future with the European Union or out with the rising Islamophobia ever so much um, globally, or our place in terms of where, whether and where these conversations among ourselves are taking us. Yeah, all very good questions. Um, you know, I think that I kind of ended up, I ended that thread that I had on a slightly more optimistic note, and I think I can um, replicate the same here, uh, perhaps. I, I think that there is something very positive to be said about how people from, let's say, our broader community have been able to create these kind of spaces and venues um, 
for, for these sorts of positive projects and for these sorts of conversations. Um, you know, I was involved for a, a bit in the early stages with the with the War Childhood Museum in, in Sarajevo, and just you know the amount of the amount of care that went into that, and, and being very you know we had. I was, you know, I was kind of involved in that. There were also, uh, you know, people trained in psychology, people working more of NGO space, people with kind of backgrounds in, um, in, in psychiatry and things like that. I mean, everyone kind of brought their expertise and we were all very careful about what does this, um, what kind of impact will this have on the community? You know, we, did, we certainly were very careful not to just re-traumatize people. And it became, you know, it was a really a key part of the mission of that organization was to allow people to tell their stories in a way that would, um, you know, be healing and also to um, tell stories of themselves as survivors, ultimately, which is what they, you know, the way that they saw themselves. So I think, you know, I'm encouraged to see places like the War Childhood Museum succeed, um, also to see the work of Emi Suryagic at the Severance Memorial Center. Um, and elsewhere, you know, big and small, I, uh, on Twitter, some of the conversations I'm seeing between not just Bosnians, but people from, you know, Syria or Kosovo, mm -hmm. that's fantastic. And I think mm -hmm. that we need to kind of, we need to encourage and maintain those connections, um, because we're not going to be able to, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to accomplish that kind of critical work that we need to do simply within the confines of kind of institutional Western academia, uh, where we have some of these you know, structures up again, uh, up against us. Um, so in that sense, it's positive. And in fact, you know, the the sort of, these sorts of statements about chosen trauma and this sudden concern about, you know, Sebrenica as, as, as a sort of, you know, part as a, like a constructive national project or whatever, I think ultimately reflect that there is this new Bosnian initiative to kind of speak our stories on our own terms. Um, I think that's ultimately what it what it does reflect. So in that sense, I think, you know, there's reasons to be optimistic going forward. Yeah, and I do want to mention one part that amongst so much burdensome politics, um, even though today we did hopefully uh, manage to address that humane and human aspect of this intergenerational legacies, uh, something that I definitely uh, want to keep uh, following as the scientific research continues. And that is literally how many scientists are continually studying how trauma or stressors can be passed down through generations as in passed down by being remembered in the cells of the body. It is called epigenetic inheritance of trauma. And so far from all I've read, we've seen in mice that the fear of trauma or stress, whatever you, know, you want to call it might be epigenetically inherited and these studies continue uh, but there is so much that needs to be said about the physical and psychological aspects of the what I've been recently thinking about as manipulations of pain and almost intentional infliction of harm after the actual atrocities are being committed and what we have been seeing throughout different actions, words, occasions, and um, events, and policies. That said, and of course, there's so much more to talk about the internal situation in Bosnia in terms of youth in unemployment, and so much more, uh, so many people leaving. Um, that is completely conversation on its own. But I think that there is absolutely a generation of activists within Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, and in the region, and um, Yasmin mentioned Albanians and Kosovars, and they have class of scholars who are very, very um, good and uh, very vocal and who write about local critique, whether it's state building process or uh, any of the other 
policies and frameworks that they're not included in. We did say a little bit about the future. Now that we are getting towards the end, I do want to ask you about something that is not related to politics, because I want uh, precisely my uh, listeners and viewers to see you not just an experts on what you study, but as humans who have all sorts of amazing interests, maybe hobbies or what you want, what you will share with us. So here are five sweet questions uh, for the end. Please feel free to order to respond in any order. The first one is this. Unfortunately, COVID-19 pandemic is not over by any means in many places around the world. So in your particular circumstances, is there anything that you would not want to forget from um, the lockdowns uh, and the pandemic era? Uh, I guess I would just say that, um, and, and this is, in a sense is connected to what we've been talking about, that, you know, one of the, the, the great benefits of the lockdowns was getting to spend more time with my family um, and not, um, not really wanting to give that up. Uh, so, you know, as we kind of move, perhaps in whatever fashion to some kind of, I don't want to say post-COVID, but, mm -hmm. you know, post-lockdown world at the very least, um, I think I'm definitely in, in the camp of those people where, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not really interested in giving up that time that I have with my kids and, you know, with my wife and, and all of that. And I, and I think hopefully, um, hopefully more of us will insist on that as just kind of a necessity of life. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to work eight to six and, and, you know, then see my kids before bedtime and that's it. Like, no, I actually want to spend the better part of my day with my kids and then I'll squeeze a little bit of work in there somewhere. Um, so I, that, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. I can I resonate know. with that. I don't what about you? I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with everything Yasmin said. It's been great to be able to, you know, spend more time with my, with my wife and also with my parents during the pandemic. Um, but I was going to bring up something a little more mundane, which is that I've enjoyed the America's rediscovery of kind of pedestrian life and alfresco dining. Mm. Um, I mean, that's something that we're just completely <laughs> missing in our very automobile-dependent society. Yeah. And now, you know, everywhere I go, whether in Ann Arbor, Michigan, or, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, you have streets that are more blocked off to cars and there's more place for people to walk and socialize and have dinner outside with their friends. Mm -hmm. I, I really hope that's something that's gonna stick around and, and something that's gonna be more integrated into American culture um, from here on out. I wholeheartedly believe, I mean, hope so too. Um, second question, Yasmin, which of your personality traits has been the most useful? Not the best trait, but the most useful? Uh, I think um i so something that doesn't come across on twitter um but is really like categorical to my personhood in many ways is i kind of get uncomfortable if i go more than about a minute or two minutes without making like some kind of dumb joke um so mm -hmm. I, I like i'm it's it's like humor and um sort of silliness is really um, is really important to who I am actually in real life. Um, and I think oftentimes I've gotten the sense when people who kind of only know me from Twitter get a chance to meet me in real life, mm -hmm. they're like, wow, you're weird. Like, what, yeah. what is this? Like, are you drunk? Like, no, this is, this is just how I am. Um, mm. So I think in a way, um, not taking myself too seriously and mm. also refusing to allow other people to get too high on their horse in my presence mm. um, has, been, has been really useful. You know, my dad always used to say, 
um, if you ever think anyone is better than you, just imagine the Queen of England on the toilet. Um, and this was like his little way of saying, um, you know, we're all we're all human beings at the end of the day, and no one is inherently better than you, or for that matter, you're not inherently better than anyone else. So uh, just keep that in mind. And so yeah, that's what I would say. Okay, now we know. Uh, Yasmin makes good jokes. Let keep it, keep them coming online. Um, I think that's also important. I think as I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to find my own balance between trying to show that I am a human who doesn't just tweet about right. politics and then just getting it off balance and then people I don't know it's complicated Twitter is complicated I didn't get to ask you about how you deal with digital hate so if you feel free to slide it in and share some advice please uh, feel free but how don't tell us what is the which of your personality traits has been the most useful uh the personality trait that has been the most useful while not necessarily being good is probably my you know what? Um, I credit huh. with making it through graduate school and finishing a PhD. It was, Wait, but say it in English. What? How would you translate that? Not, uh, I think it literally means spite, but you know, it has cultural connotations that are yeah, hard it has a different good connotations in some context in our yes. And I would like to add that my way with dealing with online hate on Twitter is to go through Yasmin's comments and just preemptively block everyone who was there. Mm. Um, it's been pretty useful so far. So yeah, okay. You're I welcome. Okay. Uh, when you have 30 minutes of free time, how do you pass that time? Uh, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I, I have aquariums. <laughs> oh, in plural? <laughs> yes, I have oh, wow. two. Uh, right. uh, I, you know, I'm slowly trying to introduce the topic of a third one to my wife. Mm. Um, just, you know, casually slide it mm. into conversation. Mm. Um, so I, I, I like that. It's my little, you know. But how many fish do you have? I have aquarium with two fish. Well, it's so the other one probably has about 15 fish and oh. um, like more shrimp than I can count. Oh. Uh, and then another one is just kind of a better fish tank. So um, I really like it. It's very slow moving. It's very peaceful. I like kind of making the little landscapes and things. Mm. Um, I, I find it very therapeutic. Um, mm. And I think, you know, since we're talking about trauma and PTSD, I think there's um, I think a lot of Bosnians that I've talked to who are very cognizant and open about their mental health. I think one of the themes that I've discovered through talking to many generations of Bosnians about this is, um, is the theme of water um, mm. and sitting by rivers specifically um, and, and watching them the meander. Mm. And I think there must be something about water that's restorative or, mm. you know, something therapeutic about it. So that's, that's my 30 minutes is staring at my fish tanks. <laughs> and what about you, Harun? Do you have any uh, it's a tough question to be honest. I feel like I've I've just been working a lot lately. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's a very, um, yeah. but yeah. So I don't know. I uh, I spend about thirty minutes a day uh, driving my wife back and from the to and from the you know subway stations to help out. Mm. So driving on the highway and listening to whatever on Spotify is kind of my little moment of zen. Um, yeah, that's, that's yeah. the honest answer. <laughs> that's that's wonderful, and I know that Yasmin is an incredibly. Um, helpful dad because sometimes we message each other about parental responsibilities and sicknesses so um, I appreciate that and um, celebrate partners who participate in family life and support uh, professional and personal development so kudos to you Harun for that um, what skill or craft would you like to master guys oh that's a tough one uh, well um, <laughs> I play the accordion um, so I would, uh, like to have more time to devote to that. Um, and, um, I've sort of played it on and off since about the age of like six or seven. 
Um, so right now I'm definitely in a more off period, but, um, you know, in a, in you cannot future- now just unsay that <laughs> the masses would demand right. a, a video, a clip yeah, yeah, of a it. little bit of a Makedonsko, <laughs> but then which, uh, um, yeah, no, so it's, I, you know, I, um, I would like, I would like to spend a little bit more time. I'm not some like great musician for this thing from, um, but it's, you know, it's just, it's something that's good for the mind. I think good for the soul as it were, just spending a little bit of time. Um, so in the ideal universe where I wasn't uh, uh, changing diapers and, and, and dealing with princess dresses um, for about 48 hours of every 24 hour day, <laughs> um, I would probably spend it on music and the accordion. Todd, mm. what skill or craft would you like to master? You know, honestly, I feel like I've had uh, an acoustic guitar sitting in the corner of like various bedrooms for the past like 20 years or so. So one day I'll get to it, you know, and that'll be a special day indeed. That's, um, yeah, music is really important and any sort of actually also art. Um, I mean, the research shows that it is so um, therapeutic as well. Um, so that said, uh, last question, are any of your friends guys completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you? Uh, I would say the vast majority of my kind of real life friends are in a completely different like universe uh there's very few people in in my immediate friend circle who um work in politics or policy or even academia um you know my closest friend circle uh of kind of the guys that i grew up with um in in vancouver uh canada um you know they're all like in you know they work in hospitals and they're physiotherapists and you know one of them is a librarian and you know they're all super intelligent well you know learned guys um, but I, I think in many ways, people would be surprised. The ex- I, I, I maintain a very severe separation between my kind of public and private life. Um, and I think that's, that's important for me. It's really important for my family. It's, it's a way that I protect my family. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I try to really keep those two worlds as separate as I can. I mean, there's obviously people who I'm friends with, but who are also colleagues. So mm-hmm. obviously there's some of that. Um, but for the most part, I try to keep my public and private very, very separate. Mm-hmm. And Harun, what about you? You know, I think in practice, uh, so many of the close friends that I have now are people that I've kind of met through the journey of, of being through going through academia, doing research and things like that. So people both in the U.S. and in Bosnia and, and elsewhere. Um, and that's been nice. Honestly, looking back on it, that's one of my favorite things about the whole experience. Um, so, you know, in some ways, I guess they are similar to me. But I did have a, you know, I did have a fun experience well, I, I was in Ann Arbor back back in Ann Arbor in Michigan for much of the pandemic recently because that's where I grew up after the war um, once we had left Sarajevo. And, um, you know, while there, I was eventually able to reconnect with some friends who I hadn't seen since high school. Um, and it was it was really nice. And it was such, just such a trip to realize that, you know, not everyone had gone into the weeds of Balkan history or whatever. Um, you know, it was, it, it was refreshing, you know, it was great to catch up with people. So I hope that I can do more of that going forward as well. Yeah. Well, that said, and in terms of just friendships or collegiality, I want to thank both of you for uh, taking out the time from your busy schedules to share some of your thoughts. I know we could have gone uh, so much longer and I already have things that 
oh, we should have talked about this as well as well. But I, we talk about this on Twitter a lot, but I did want one more time to compile this in one place so that all those who want to learn and hear a little bit, whether they're Bosnians or not, actually, I think a lot of people could find themselves within these conversations about representation and trauma and dehumanization. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you would like to add to the listeners and viewers before we wrap it up and say goodbye? Uh, no, I mean, thank you for, for hosting us and, and for this platform. I, I think it's really terrifically important that these conversations happen. And I guess, you know, just to kind of harp on that last point that you made, I, I, I think all of the comments that we said, even some of the stuff that was more critical and coming from a more pain place, et cetera, et cetera, really all of this is about inviting more conversation mm. um, and more exchange. Yes, you know, along the parameters of 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 realizing and 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 recognizing trauma and pain and historical facts, um, you know, speaking speaking to the right people and elevating the right people, elevating uh, uh, the the narratives and the experiences of survivors. Um, but it is about more conversation, but the right kind of conversation. And I thank you for uh, making this space to have what I would consider the right kind of conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thank you, Viana. Um, and to all our listeners and viewers, uh, please feel free to share the comments and um, share these conversations with others who might be interested. Stay tuned for more conversations with people from all around the globe and hold tight to those you love. Stay well and have a good day. Bye.